Welcome to Women in Venture Capital, a podcast by students for students. I'm Rashvina. And I'm Anvita. And we are from the Harvard Business School. Our guest today is Elizabeth Edwards. Elizabeth is the founder and managing partner of H Venture Partners, a seed venture and early growth equity fund that invests in consumer products and devices. She's over 15 years of investing experience in North America, having previously worked as an investor at Mavic Select Investments, West Capital, and Near Holdings. Elizabeth started her career in consulting at Deloitte and holds an MBA in finance from University of Cincinnati. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. We're really glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. Super. Jumping right in, I think we'd love to know that what really motivated you to become an investor when you started your career actually in consulting? Yeah, so when I was uh, pursuing my MBA, I really thought that I was going to be a real estate developer um, and was looking forward to that, but then participated in the case competition for MBA program and just really enjoyed it, enjoyed the strategy aspects and kind of the holistic you know, business case uh, process. And the judges noticed, so there was actually a judge from Deloitte Consulting and a bunch of judges from Procter & Gamble. Uh, the, the case was on an Asian cosmetics brand, um, for irony. <laughs> and, um, and so the, one of the judges, Brent Brueggemann, came up to me and said, you know, it just really seems like uh, you've enjoyed this case competition. And have you ever considered a career in strategy consulting? And I hadn't. Um, the next day, they were actually in their third round of case interviews and just popped me into the schedule. I had no idea what I was jumping into. Of course, case interviews are something that um, normally you would prep for and, and do quite a bit of practice. Um, I had no knowledge of the process uh, or where they were in the process and ended up uh, getting hired on uh, to Deloitte, just really enjoyed the partners and, and the work and joined a very small group within Deloitte. Uh, we called ourselves the Innovator Solution and the group was led by Michael Rayner, who was Clayton Christensen's co-author on the Innovator's Solution. And so we were operationalizing that work, mostly doing front-end M&A work. So we were looking for technologies and startups for big companies like Johnson & Johnson to license and acquire in order to kind of reimagine what would Johnson & Johnson look like in the next you know, 10 and 20 years. And it was the people on the other side of the table that were so interesting to me because these were technologists, inventors, um, you know, clinicians, entrepreneurs that had taken an incredible amount of uh, risk um, on in order to launch their companies. So they emptied out their IRAs, uh, worked without a salary for years to create this, you know, this new innovation. And so I was just really intrigued by these risk takers and I wanted to really uh, spend more time with them and in fact be on the other side of the table. So that's how I jumped into venture capital. And I had no idea at the time uh, that it was such a small industry. There are only about 100,000 people globally that work in venture capital. Um, and just to give you an idea of, of the size of that industry, Deloitte has 300,000 people uh, working for that company. So I was going from a company that was three times bigger than the industry 
that I ultimately ended up in 17 years ago. So um, first started out working with a family office that was looking to diversify out of real estate and into uh, startups and have been loving it ever since. Quite a big transition for sure. Um, and yeah, just moving to age ventures, you know, we, I was reading an excerpt from your website and it basically said that the H in our name stands for human and reflects our focus on brands that address timeless, fundamental human needs. Can you tell us a little bit more about the idea of starting age ventures and the human aspect that you mentioned? So when I, when I look at uh, venture capital in general, you have to keep in mind, you know, 75% of the world's venture capital is in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley does a couple of things really well, tech and biotech. But tech and biotech do not encompass our entire economy. Um, they're just, you know, two industries within a group of a lot of industries and consumer is actually quite large. And I had been a, a consumer specialist for a long time at this point when I, um, when I started H Venture Partners four years ago. And one thing that I would hear from limited partners, so those folks that invest in venture capital uh, funds, um, I would hear things like, well, how big is consumer really? I mean, you know, what's the size of that sector? And I'm thinking, oh, I don't know, do you eat food? <laughs> do you drink beverages or wash your hair or, you know, do laundry? It's pretty darn big. Um, and so the consumer sector is large. But then the next uh, piece of criticism that I'd get from quite a few uh, of those limited partners is, well, I mean, just how do you know if something's a fad or not? And, and that's really one of the things that um, inspired this uh, messaging around exactly what we do. So when I think of myself, I don't think of myself as a consumer. I don't think of myself as someone who is, um, you know, chasing trends or fads. I think of myself as a person with jobs to do, needs. And, you know, one of those needs is, you know, I have three meals a day to eat. Um, I need shelter. Uh, I need safety. And so age really goes back to Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is those timeless fundamental human needs, those things that you need um, day in, day out, uh, every year of your life, uh, no matter what. And those tend to be the things that you find in those major consumer categories. So, you know, more focused on needs than wants, um, more focused on the things that you would find walking the aisles of a Target. If you, you know, kind of imagine walking through a Target those large, large, large aisles that you see are dedicated to the largest uh, consumer categories, things like food, beverage, apparel, personal care, feminine care, baby care, home care, fabric care, all the cares. Um, and so those are the things that we focus on at H Venture Partners. But the twist uh, that we really apply to this huge sector is that we're focused also on those very 
scientific and technical aspects of the consumer sector. And this is another thing that quite frankly, I don't think that most of Silicon Valley understands or really is focused on. And, and it's partly, you know, the reason is just geography. Um, you don't find very many uh, consumer companies uh, in Silicon Valley. And I, I would say the classic, you know, food, beverage, apparel, personal care, beauty, femme care, beauty care, fabric care, those types of uh, consumer companies. Of course, you've got retailers like Sephora or yes, Clorox is based there. But if you think about the major Fortune 500 uh, consumer leaders, they are mostly organized along the Ohio and Mississippi River, and for good reason. And in fact, even the major retailers like Walmart, Target, et cetera, Kroger. So they're organized along those riverways because they've been there for you know 100 or more years. And they, you know, that's where we make all the stuff. Um, so all of the technical expertise, things like making baby diapers, you wouldn't think, oh, you know, how. How technical could that really be? Well, a Pampers diaper has over a hundred patents associated with it, and they can make like you know tens of thousands of them a minute on machines that cost millions and millions uh, to build. And so these are highly technical and highly scientific uh, categories and subcategories, and that's really where we're focused because that's where we can have the biggest impact on human health and on the environment is some of these breakthrough uh, scientific approaches to you know, the everyday human needs. Um, and those are the types of companies that we invest in. That's really well put. And you, know, you rightly said the distinction between a must have versus a good to have. The must have is a much larger market and creates a obvious pull in terms of execution and something that you'd want as a brand. Um, I'll probably just add a nuance that lately there have been just innovations even in distribution channels. I mean, the existing diapers that were sold on IELTS today are now sold on Amazon as well. The existing mattress, which was, yeah, I mean, borderline must have is also now sold completely online. I would just argue that there are these innovations in distribution channels as well that we account, that we probably account for. And then also see these large opportunities creating value for investors, shareholders, bringing on um, capital at the time needed, et cetera. But uh, I'm completely with you in, in distinguishing between a fad, which is okay, good to have, probably not gonna be around for long versus a must have, which is an essential livelihood requirement. And that's very helpful in the way you laid it out. Um, on a related note, you did shed some light on what's, uh, what, what does it, what kind of themes would Edge Ventures go for? Uh, but specifically with the post pandemic world now, can you share some themes and trends that you've seen or are expecting to see come up in the consumer space in the coming times? Yeah, I think that COVID has had and will continue to have for quite a while uh, an impact on the consumer sector. So we saw a massive adoption of delivery services, you know, like DoorDash, Instacart, um, you know, grocery delivery. Uh, so a lot of folks jumping on Amazon that hadn't been there before. Um, these are, of course, pretty significant uh, supply chain uh, changes. So companies like Walmart and Kroger 
have really invested a lot in order to keep up with that new desire to have everything delivered. So convenience is now uh, that much more of um, an important aspect of that customer relationship. But we saw some categories that experience fundamental shifts. Um, a great example of this is, is pet. So we saw a step change in the number of pets uh, that are here in North America. And it wasn't just in 2020, we're, we're seeing you know, uh, increased demand even in 2021. And so that's an industry that both uh, from a pricing standpoint, so consumers are willing to pay a premium, we're seeing more, more and more premium products, but we're also seeing just a huge growth um, in that particular sector. Um, overall, though, I think the biggest takeaway from COVID is this reimagined and renegotiated social contract that we have with everyone from employers and schools, um, whether those are elementary schools or colleges, uh, you know, and, and, and specifically I'm talking about flexible working and learning arrangements where location is less of a factor for large groups of employees. There was already a talent war going on before COVID, but now that's um, and it's really exacerbated by COVID, um, both in upper income and in lower income communities. And so that renegotiated social contract is going to have huge and lasting implications on how we live, but there's also new social contracts being formed with the brands and the retailers that we interact with. Um, I think that COVID really highlighted our fragmented existence. So, you know, we had long-term demographic trends. I know the census data just came out, but this is something that we've looked at for years and years. And um, we're a country of lots of big minorities. Um, and so that's having an impact um, in what consumers expect from the brands that they invest in. It's become a much more challenging marketplace for big mass brands to navigate. Um, and that's because of this overall fragmentation. Um, and so that's something that we're keeping an eye on. Ultimately, what I think COVID has really had an impact on is this increased sense of intentional living. So COVID sent us to our rooms to kind of reevaluate our lives. Who are we? Um, our identities. Uh, what do we stand for? What's important to us? How do we want to live? Now, once you kind of blow up the construct of you get up in the morning, you commute, you go to your spot, you work there, you come back home, you know, um, all of that. If we blew all of that up and started over, how do we want to reimagine that lifestyle? And so uh, people um, are taking away from this much more intentional living, also with this huge backdrop of health. So we're much more focused today as a firm on consumer health, and I would say holistic health, uh, than ever before. We had already made prior to COVID two investments in holistic telehealth platforms um, that, you know, my goodness, had huge uh, 
uh, COVID tailwinds, but um, we're continuing to see this sort of echo of impact in mental health and just overall physical health. So uh, we saw a huge jump in depression, anxiety, mostly, you know, first and foremost, led by social isolation. And I kind of think of what we get on Zoom is kind of like processed food, but it's like processed socialization. So we're not getting all of the same social benefits from Zoom um, that we get when we are in person. And that's having a negative impact on overall mental health, um, leading to burnout, you know, um, leading to isolation. And so there's been a huge step change in things like mental health, telehealth platforms, um, and at the same time, 42% of Americans gained uh, an average of 29 pounds over COVID. So I think this year we're going to see a lot more attention to diet, exercise, um, and just overall physical health. Um, I think the Delta variant only just like puts a spotlight on that, but, um, but we are seeing folks you know, slowly return to the gym and other, you know, boutique fitness um, experiences, but really with this sense of, I, I need to focus on my physical and mental health because we kind of came to this uh, turning point um, during COVID. And so that's going to be, I think, a big, a, a big focus for 21 and 22, but um, this experience will have, you know, long-term ramifications. You know, this was for a lot of people, the most traumatic thing that they've experienced. And, you know, you could argue whether it's as traumatic as, you know, World War II or the Great Depression. Um, I think that, you know, all it, it's all relative. Um, and it, COVID affected uh, all of us in much, much different ways. Um, if you're a restaurant worker, a healthcare worker, um, or if you were you know, a consumer venture capital investor. It just didn't affect everyone the same way, um, but it will have, you know, long-term implications when it comes to intentional living. I definitely echo um, the burnout and the, the physical health and mental health. Um, and we, Anvita and I did, I'm um, started our MBA um, with online. So uh, we saw this transition, we'd had a little bit of hybrid, but I can definitely relate to a lot of things that you mentioned. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit here and talk about more uh, about the fund and just being a woman in the venture capital space. So starting a fund has been seen as a highly effective way of putting women in more decision making roles, but obviously it's not a possibility for everyone. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process of founding Age Ventures and creating the brand and investment thesis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, we need more women uh, starting firms. We need more women in decision-making roles in venture capital. If you look at just the overall investment community, you know, you've got a $70 trillion, uh, you know, um, sector, the investment sector that is 99% managed by white men. Um, and I'm not talking about associates uh, and analysts. I'm talking about carry holding, you know, carried interest taking members of these funds 
and those that are ultimately uh, deciding what opportunities will merit investment and, and which, which of those will not. And so important to have more women and people of color and uh, Hispanic and you know, non-North American born uh, folks uh, around the table making these decisions and bringing those disparate lived experiences to the table um, and highlighting, you know, and really putting a spotlight on some of these blind spots. But when you, I, I, I guess I would take issue with, it's not a possibility for everyone. And I would add right now. <laughs> so um, yes, if you are uh, coming right out of your MBA, uh, starting a fund may not be a possibility right now, but give it some years and it will be a possibility in the future. If you are experienced and if you're good um, in the industry, I think starting a fund is a possibility for a lot of people. And that's actually where we're seeing all of the diversity really come from when it comes to who's in charge, who's making the decisions, who's, who's really taking that carried interest ultimately at the end of the day. And so when I started H Venture Partners, I already had you know, 15 years of experience as a venture capital investor because I got into the industry at a very young age and kind of went through different business cycles, worked for different firms, uh, picked along, you know, picked up along the way, different ways of thinking about investing, different processes, approaches, and growing my network. Um, and I think that if you have um, a realized track record, if you have experiences that you can add up to a differentiated investment thesis, um, a focus area that you in particular um, can really uh, go after um, with your unique set of experiences, then I think you are you know, ready to uh, start a fund. The process for starting a fund, um, I would say uh, it's not for the faint of heart or for uh, those that can't afford to take the risk. It is entrepreneurship like any other kind of entrepreneurship. So you empty out your IRA and you spend quite a few years not making a salary. Um, and then at the end of the day, if you're successful, you know, it may take years to raise your first fund. Um, and you get off the ground and you start investing and, and you go from there. Um, for, for I think the vast majority of fund managers, those first few years are really tough. Um, and I would also say that venture capital as an asset class is not necessarily an asset class for the impatient or the faint of heart or for folks that are in it for the money. And the example I would give, if you look at a $10 million fund versus a billion dollar fund, you know, $10 million venture capital fund versus a billion dollar buyout fund, the buyout fund manager at the end of the day is gonna be taking a much larger salary and has a much larger carried interest. Um, and that's just, you know, kind of the financial laws of gravity there. It's a bigger fund. They're much more, you know, by, you know, orders of 10, much, much 
more management fees and a much bigger carry, um, you know, to, to split up. So um, if you're in it for the money, private equity and, you know, buyout might be uh, more the way to go. If you're like me and you just love the science and you love those crazy inventors and you love entrepreneurs and, and risk-taking and, uh, and you're okay with making a relatively, you know, lower salary or smaller carry then you know, venture capital is the way to go. That's genuinely very candid. Uh, really appreciate that feedback that you mentioned. Um, on the same note, would also love to get your insights on what advice would you have for women looking to break into the industry? And you did mention that get your uh, almost facts right, that know this the stage you're getting into. But over and above that, in terms of trying to maybe get a foot in the door or build your networks or anything surrounding the whole process of breaking into the industry. What advice would you have and specific to women, um, if you could share with us and anything you found effective from your personal journey would be lovely to hear. Yeah, so I think that venture capital is one of those industries that it is really helpful to have both the strategy and the finance background. And so, I would say that the, the most successful VCs that I've seen are first and foremost strategists. You know, look at Reed Hoffman. Reed Hoffman, uh, it was funny, I, I met Reed Hoffman years and years ago back in like 20, let's see, 20, 2008, 2009. No, earlier than that. Yeah, 2007, eight, nine, somewhere in there. And, um, oh, it was 2008. He was working on Obama's campaign. Um, so, here he is, you know, this tech titan. Um, and I'm thinking, well, surely this guy has like, you know, highly technical uh, background. He's probably a former engineer or something like that. We get to talking. Reid Hoffman's uh, undergraduate degree is the same as mine, which is cognitive psychology. And it, he was kind of drawn into the same, um, the same major for the same reasons. I was just fascinated by the human brain, um, how and, and emotion, how people make decisions, and I, I really think that you know there there's a there's a love of science and innovation, and I'm talking about like you know scientists in the lab kind of love of science that unites a lot of VCs. Um, we either want to go to the moon or you know change the world with the internet, um, uh, you know, make meat in a lab. Um, so they're, these are generally big idea people who are able to break things down into their, you know, their smallest parts, you know, those, those component parts focus on just getting to market with that minimum viable product. Um, for investors, for folks to make money, you might, you might be, pretty good at identifying trends and identifying, oh, you know, this company's got the best product. They're, you know, they've got the best technology. Well, that's just one piece of it um, because as an investor, um, and this happens a lot, you might fall in love with the technology, but the deal is terrible. <laughs> and so you have to have this um, discipline uh, that you're not gonna invest in things that, yeah, it might seem great, but the deal is terrible. And you know, that that is also something to, you know, to keep in mind, which is 
the business model for VCs is to make money for their investors. Uh, and so having that, that finance background and that investing discipline is really important. And so I really believe that you've, you, have to, you have to be constantly honing your investment thesis, your processes, your series of rules for investing that are evidence-based. So, you know, with over 17 years in this, um, in this asset class, I've been burned a lot of times. I've, I've learned a lot of things. I have this, you know, great network of folks that invest in, um, in the same types of things that I invest in, but we all think about things differently and bring, you know, different perspectives to the table. But I would say that each one of us, you know, based on unique experiences has this set of like investment rules. I'm never going to invest in a company that is X, Y, Z because been there, done that, you know, that is an indicator for, you know, failure or, you know, I look for companies that have ABC because that's a strong indicator of, of success. So I think early on, um, even prior to joining uh, a firm to start really crafting that um, and, and looking for those companies, looking for those startups that meet your investment thesis, because nothing is more attractive, I would say, um, in an interview than talking to, uh, especially for, you know, post MBA, um, I would say, talking to someone who has uh, a pretty unique, you know, set of experiences and a view on the world and, um, you know, investment themes, investment rules, deals, you know, companies that, uh, fit within those themes, fit within those roles, because it really shows that, yes, you're, even though you might not be currently working in the industry, your mindset is that of a venture capital investor. That's amazing. Thank you so much for these insights. They were, I'm sure, very, very helpful. On a closing note, I uh, would love to kick off a quick rapid fire round, some three quick questions. Uh, the first one for you, Elizabeth, is that you mentioned pet care industry is booming. Just on that note for you, are you a cat or a dog person? <laughs> <laughs> I am a dog person. Um, I don't have a dislike of, of cats, but I, yeah, I've had uh, cocker spaniels and, um, and Labrador retrievers. And yeah, I, I'm a dog person. Amazing. Fair enough. Um, on a related note, if you had to pick a getaway location that you can go um, and, and the one location you'd pick, which one would that be? Oh, uh, that would be my, my lake cottage uh, in Southern Michigan, um, which is uh, on a spring fed lake. And it's been in my family for six generations. It's so relaxing. I love it up there all year round. That sounds so nice. And a little bit on a serious note, and the last one for this session, um, which is one of the, the recent investments or exits that you'd love to share and talk about a little bit on the thesis around it? Yeah, so um, one of our recent investments uh, is in a company called Hazel that is going to be launching soon here. Uh, this is a company that has a novel incontinence product. So if you think about incontinence, which look, you know, depends, <laughs> these, these are things that we invest in, um, depends, you know, may not be on the top of your shopping list, but 
uh, for a lot of consumers it is. And in fact, if you look at developed countries like Japan, uh, they sell more adult diapers than they sell baby diapers and the US is right there with them. And so incontinence is a, a pretty massive category with few players that doesn't get a whole lot of you know, discussion or play. I love categories like that, um, that are massive, but maybe unsexy and talk about need. It's a fundamental need. So this is a company that has a ton of technology. They have an entirely different approach uh, to, um, to the category and uh, is one that's probably going to disrupt uh, the incontinence category. So that's one that's pre-launched that we're pretty excited about. That sounds so exciting. Um, that's about it for today. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been a lovely conversation. Really appreciate your candid insights. I'm sure our listeners will take away a lot from it. Thank you so much.